Holland Wilcox acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people joining us today. Hello, and welcome back to the latest season of Tax Records. My name is Frank Hinopoulos, and I am the head of tax at Holland Wilcox. I'm very excited about today's episode. We're going to be discussing professional services M&A, and we're going to be looking at the things that uh, one should consider when contemplating a sale, including how to maximise the benefits while managing the risks. Uh, Can I sell my practice? Uh, Is there a buyer for it? And what are the options to sell it? And what sort of valuation might I be able to achieve? And we're also going to talk about what some of the major commercial, legal and tax issues are that somebody may encounter on their journey of either buying somebody else's practice or selling their own practice. And I'm especially delighted today to be joined uh, by my my fellow partner, Chris Brown, and a special guest, uh, Jason Phillips from JNP Advisory. And we we will put down a... um, a full uh, CV for both Chris and Jason, but um, very, very quickly uh, to introduce them both. Uh, Chris is a partner in our corporate and commercial team uh, based in Sydney, and he has a focus on uh, M&A transactions and a particular specialisation in professional service and financial advisory firms. Uh, Chris, uh, I work with Chris a lot, and um, He is every bit the trusted advisor to his many, many clients. Uh, He has excellent commercial instincts and can can, can turn around a transaction document almost faster uh, than anyone that I've seen. And I I can add to that that um, he he has a a pretty fierce golf game and uh, an excellent singing voice as well. Um, Thanks, (laughs) Mike. Anytime, Chris. Um, Jason is uh, the founder and director of JNP Advisory. Uh, that's a leading boutique advisory firm that specialises and focuses on transactions, advice, and facilitation uh, of uh, transactions involving professional services firms and a uh, particular speciality on uh, providing valuation and valuation support for uh, professional services firms. Prior to starting JNP Advisory, uh, Jason had a long and illustrious career at a number of leading accounting and financial services firms, including amongst those AXA and Macquarie. So, Jason, Chris, welcome to you both, and thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Frank. So, let's start um, our podcast by just looking at what's happening in the market and asking you for some market observations. So, uh, I've seen anecdotally and, and um, amongst our client base that there has been considerable activity in the market for professional services firms, and that's across the small, medium and large end of the market. And uh, it's been a lot of activity in particular um, with uh, or in the accounting and financial services uh, sectors. So can I just hear from you both about what uh, you see uh, some of the market dynamics that are driving this activity? Yeah, thanks, Frank. Um, look, I think there's there's a number of thematics playing out here. Um, probably first and foremost, at the SME end of the market is a succession thematic. So, you know, we're getting to the point where there's this great wealth transition, which we're reading about increasingly in the newspaper. 
um, where a lot of uh, baby boomer and, uh, in fact, Gen X advisors and accountants are looking to uh, achieve an exit. So that's sort of the first thematic, probably a succession, a succession planning or working its way through thematic. Um, secondly, there's a scale and specialization thematic. Um, I think a lot of operators out there are seeing that um, when it comes to professional services and business services in particular, they want to have a greater share of wallet. So, you know, we were accountants, but now we provide business services more generally. And that spans um, traditional um, um, uh, accounting advice. Uh, compliance work, um, uh, financial services, um, mortgage broking, finance broking, so on and so forth. So I think there's a number of operators who are looking to grow and essentially uh, have as much of the uh, uh, share of wallet as as possible. And then finally, I think yeah, a lot of um, scale junkies, if you like, a lot of larger um, businesses have, have gotten into this idea that um, to achieve meaningful growth, quickly, it's going to be a lot easier to go and buy something than it is to sort of just grow it organically. And we also have a lot more uh, uh, private capital looking for a home. And we also have a lot of um, consolidation or consolidation models which have worked in other sectors and in other adjacencies. And I think now private equity and others and those with private capital are looking at accounting and saying, well, you know, it's worked for financial planning it's worked for vets, it's worked for dentists. Let's try and achieve the same thing in, in accounting and business services. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. And uh, Jason, this is uh, probably something that you would have more firsthand experience um, and, and knowledge about. So um, can we hear a little bit from you about what you're seeing um, happening in the market and, and what you see as some of the uh, some of the factors that are driving that activity? Uh, yes. Uh, well, in regards to themes, I agree totally with Chris, um, but the themes around succession and around growth and, and getting additional services into a, a professional services firm across the board is very important. However, there's some nuances around some of those themes. And um, for example, the succession piece, uh, particularly with smaller practices, sole practitioner practices, um, where a sole practitioner may have worked uh, for an extended period of time, they are really working through some of their planning issues um, and COVID and the uh, staff shortages that have been uh, present post uh, COVID have actually brought on many people's decisions around that. So you do see some nuances around speeding up the transaction process and where demand is and, and supply is in the marketplace, which may not have been three or four or five years ago. So that's, uh, that's an important aspect of that. Um, in regards to um, uh, adding additional services, when firms uh, embark on that strategy, uh, what many uh, find challenging is getting that scale in that short period of, period of time. So uh, for firms that wish to embark on a, a multi-offering uh, to clients, um, they're very focused on, on building that scale as quickly as possible. Um, to make sure that uh, each division that they create is is profitable and that their overall firm profitability uh, doesn't suffer for uh, an extended period to do so. Well, thank you both. And a couple of the things that you've talked about there will um, really resonate uh, with our listeners. Um, the, the succession um, succession challenge um, is something that I see happening in a lot of the, uh, the accounting firms that we work with, um, 
no natural internal um, successor and, and that happening at the same time as a person might be thinking about the next phase of their life and what the next part of their career uh, may hold. Um, that's definitely a, a factor that's playing out. And, and you mentioned, Jason, um, the whole uh, pressure that is being created in accounting and professional services because of um, staff shortages. And uh, I think that in particular, uh, I've seen play out with a lot of our clients in accounting firms um, and across the market more generally, and, and it's something that does give impetus to some of these transactions um, uh, and practitioners starting to look at them very seriously. So um, thank you both for, for your insights on that, uh, on that very important um, background. Now, uh, moving into somebody who's actually then looking at a deal and, and considering a deal, um, one of the things I'll obviously be uh, interested in, probably above most other things, is what sort of valuation uh, they can get for their business. And, and um, I know that valuation is a bit of a, um, bit of a combination of art and science, um, but it, it would be good particularly to hear from you, Jason, about you know, what some of the valuation metrics are um, how they're formulated and how they play out in the transaction uh, su such as this, you know, what are the valuation methodologies that um, are mainstream and that apply in the market? Um, what sort of range of valuation multiples um, do you see in transactions and, and, and how has that changed or evolved um, in the short, medium term? Sure. Um, well, there's a number of uh, valuation methodologies that are adopted in uh, this sector, uh, Frank. The, the most common is uh, for smaller practices, say for revenue streams less than $3 million, um, is a multiple of revenue, um, gross annual fees, um, and, and normalised typically for, uh, for non-recurrent type of advisory services. And then the, uh, the other methodology that's uh, commonly adopted is a, a multiple of maintainable earnings. Um, and, and that's particularly relevant to larger practices. So they're the two core methods that are adopted in the in the sector. There are others, discounted cash flow and the like, but they're the, the definitely the two that you would focus on. Um, in the context of where values have um, gone, where they're going um, in recent years, is that they're uh, uh, the good news is that they're going up. Um, valuations for accounting practices have fundamentally increased. Um, over the last uh, three to five years. And uh, I would suggest that over the last uh, uh, 12 to 18 months, um, that rate of increase has increased. Um, and there's a couple of factors for that. One is uh, the supply. So even though uh, there's more supply coming into the market with people um, uh, deciding to uh, uh, execute their succession plan, there's definitely um, uh, still a lack of supply compared to the demand for these assets in the in the marketplace. Um, the availability of credit and, and capital to support um, an acquisition, and and overall the profitability of the sector has increased over the last five years through the advent of technology and other um, uh, increases in productivity and, and 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 the like, and that then gives greater comfort for a purchaser to. Uh, pay a higher price for uh, for an asset that they may have uh, otherwise not have paid as much for you know, three or five years ago. So as a result, just as a, a summary, um, most transactions that I've been involved in uh, are certainly uh, getting multiples in the Sydney and Melbourne market of um, 1.2 to 1.4 as a minimum. 
um, going up. I'm selling a, a practice uh, in Melbourne at the moment where the uh, multiple of revenue has exceeded uh, two times. So the, the market is definitely moving very quickly and, and quite steeply in that space. Uh, when it comes to a multiple of earnings, um, uh, the multiple may have been you know, four, four times, is now four and a half and, and potentially greater than five times um, uh, in, in the current marketplace. Well, that's excellent. That'll be something that will certainly pike the interest of uh, maybe some of the people listening, Jason. So uh, thanks very much for that. Um, and, and thanks very much for sharing your your insight. And um, I do know that you do uh, a lot of this valuation work and, and, and um, probably more than most in this uh, particularly specialised area. So looking at um, a transaction involving a professional services firm from a legal point of view, um, and I, I might start with you, Chris, but what are some of the differences um, that one would see in a deal where the business being transacted in uh, is a professional services firm uh, compared to a, a different business, like a bricks and mortar business or a manufacturing business or a retail business, et cetera? What are some of the different issues that you confront in a deal um, where it's a professional services firm? Yeah, sure. I mean, Obviously, with a professional services firm, we're talking about a people business. Uh, so the focus is definitely more on individuals and key individuals in, in that business uh, than, say, on products or corporate relationships, which would probably be the case with uh, any other sector, yeah, manufacturing or otherwise. So as a buyer, uh, just looking at the buyer's perspective for a second, uh, we would look for ways to ensure that the goodwill that they were buying, the goodwill they were investing in in that business didn't simply walk out the door on on day one. So that's um, the sort of personal goodwill and the brand strength associated with the individuals, the principals who are, who are selling the business. But it kind of trickles down somewhat to the key individuals who perhaps, whilst not owning the business, which is for sale, are certainly key to its success. So these might be individuals who have their own personal goodwill with client, client relationships and who are the engines of, of growth, uh, you know, the next generation, if you like, uh, within that business. And we've, you know, we've seen in a number of these transactions uh, where um, those people's interests have been sort of largely overlooked. And that's very much at the peril of the of the principal that's selling um, the practice, because that's the that's the succession story there. That's the transition and succession story there. So I think that that element is, or those elements are sort of fairly unique to, to this sector and adjacent sectors. Um, the levers of value and value creation are also different between the different types of business that we've we've mentioned. Um, with an industrial business, broadly speaking, working capital uh, in, in a very traditional sense is a very big issue. Um, on deals, we see buyers and sellers haggling, negotiating and haggling what a seasonally adjusted normalized level of working capital is. And we see these, these discussions go on for weeks and weeks. Uh, with professional services, I mean, obviously having sufficient working capital is important, but you know, maybe because we're all involved in professional services and we have a better understanding for how working capital operates within our respective sectors, it's actually quite straightforward. So what we're talking about really is, I mean, Jason obviously has a perspective on this, but from my point of view as a legal practitioner, you know, what we're talking about is is whip and debtors and how we deal deal with those so that's the sort of sum total if you like of my focus on uh, working capital in these um, professional services transactions no thank you chris that makes a lot of sense and 
Um, from your perspective, Jason, looking at it from a uh, more so from a commercial perspective, um, I mean, how do some of these differences and how do some of these things play out? Oh, well, the market is changing. And as Chris pointed out, uh, working capital, just using that as an example, is, is becoming more of a focus area for professional services firms. Now, obviously, it's not as... Uh, uh, as intense as an industrial firm where uh, working capital or large amounts of working capital are required and lots of stock and, and, and whatnot are required. Having said that, um, it is becoming a focus. So many consolidators, for example, in the market, when they uh, quote a, or make an offer price or quote a multiple, valuation multiple, it is very much on, a, uh, on a, uh, an adjustment for working capital. So working capital or, or a notional amount of working capital is expected to be retained in the business, um, whereas historically that hasn't been the case. Um, so that's becoming more common. Uh, working progress is still um, uh, a matter that's not generally acquired by purchases. Um, some may, um, but uh, it has to be uh, the evidence to suggest that it's recoverable um, is needs to be provided, so it's uh, it's a matter of negotiation. But uh, most um, most purchases would uh, disregard the, the working progress balance, and debtors, uh, in the main, if it's an asset transaction, debtors would be collected um, by the purchaser on behalf of um, of the of the vendor uh, to ensure that there's uh, an adequate tax uh, write-off for any bad debts in the future. So that's generally how, um, how we would approach working capital and, and, you know, it may well be quite different to the, to the industrial uh, marketplace. Marvellous. Um, and, and there was a great discussion and we will be revisiting some of those important themes um, a little later on in this podcast. So stay tuned for part two of this episode. Uh, as always, uh, I'd like to close out by thanking everyone who tuned in and listened to our podcast today. Uh, as always, uh, please don't hesitate for one nanosecond uh, to get in touch if uh, you have any questions which have come up because of uh, this podcast. Um, as I say, I, we will be putting down details um, for Jason and also for Chris um, when we publish this podcast on our website. Um, you can find more information about Hall & Wilcox on our website, which is uh, Hall & Wilcox, H-A-L-L-A-N-D-W-I-L-C-O-X.com.au uh, or uh, connect with us on LinkedIn. And uh, if you've enjoyed today's episode, and I, I hope that you have, then please rate, review or follow our podcasts uh, through whatever channel you uh, get your podcasts from. Thank you once again and look forward to being with you next time. This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.